Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 42.2, the second part. He almost thought once more that she was not at home. He almost thought that, with his usual accuracy, he had arrived too early or too late, for others were not so punctilious or considerate as he was. Simply by being on time, he had missed many a person he expected to meet, though in that case he had usually met with someone else. He had stumbled over old helmets and grasses and cannonballs, or so he remembered now. He had gone from room to room, seeing everywhere the signs of her militant enthusiasms, her great wars, and earlier wars such as the Peloponnesian Wars, the Siege of Rome by Hannibal, the Saracen Wars, the Civil War, the Boer War, many Balkan Wars. How many wars? So many that he had wondered where the man of the house could possibly be. Medals, ribbons of honor, citations from various battlefronts. Pictures of Custer's last stand, Sheridan's march, Paul Revere's ride to arouse the sleeping men at men, the siege of Atlanta, the rout of horses, busts of army captains, Caesar's wearing laurel wreaths, turban Turks, camel troops, swords which he had captured from furious or dreaming sheiks, the burning of Carthage, the taking of Venice. Certainly in this great house which entombed so many military grandeurs, he would not expect to meet a sleeping lady among the shadows of a darkened room, the starlight burning in her starry eyes and her staring eyes, a snowflake melting on her sunken cheek, her hand as frail and almost transparent leaf, but some old warlord toppling out toward his doom, his marble horse crumbling under him, crumbling into clouds and waters. Doubtless most of these battle souvenirs, fire axes and swords and cannonballs, had been in this house before she had ever left Boston to pursue her great wars for the liberation of ladies from man in all countries. There were also many pictures of Cousin Hannah when she was at the peak of her glorious career upon this earth, when many men had trembled at the mere thought of her, men, when many women had swooned at her approach, had fainted, had fallen, for ladies had fainted then more easily than now. And now it was the man who fainted, Cousin Hannah with her bow and arrow, Cousin Hannah as the great bloomer girl who had taken off her voluminous skirts, one arm crossed before her bosom like Napoleon on the eve of a battle greater than Waterloo, greater inasmuch as the outcome never would be known for it was raging on all fronts and in many bedrooms. Cousin Hannah challenging a streetcar with her umbrella, Cousin Hannah launching a balloon under which I was written, I have launched a new world, Cousin Hannah riding on horseback at the head of her suffrage troops, Cousin Hannah wearing an old boater and striped shirt, Cousin Hannah launching a ship which was manned by ladies, Cousin Hannah leading the needle workers to strike, albeit she was the owner of a mill, Cousin Hannah dressed as an Arab king wearing a burnoose and long skirts. Mr. Spitzer certainly envied her the power, passion, energy for life, though believing that it had been directed into the narrow channels of a lost cause. For where had her great struggles reached? He remembered that almost her last public activity had been that she had tried to organize a blacksmith union when there had been almost no blacksmiths, for the horseless carriage had succeeded the horse. And suppose there had been only one blacksmith, one Vulcan of the forge left on all the earth, could she have even so much as have organized him, the anvil, the horseshoe, the flying spark? At the very last of her life, she seemed to think that she had organized the pickets around an old town clock. They picketed the clock at every hour. Her life crumbled. All her years seemed only this dying moment, and all her journeys might have been a dream, so like his own needless journeys back and forth. Time had never advanced for her, it seemed to him. And indeed, in many hysterical and nervous persons, he had observed that all of time is but the crystallization of one sad, wild moment. They go not beyond that time, though time may pass. There were also pictures of the Taj Mahal, great crusaders' castles carving rocks, those of 10,000 singing or echoic rooms, 
Mr. Spitzer had no doubt, hearing the wind blow through lonely avenues, many moss and harem gardens and sacred pools, clouded mountain tombs and desert cities, tent caravans and cities of minarets rising through sand, two ragged mountain climbers climbing Mount Everest through the blinding snow and wind, or so the captain read. An old-fashioned baroche with its lean-ribbed horse rearing at the edge of a crumbling abyss, the driver's face blurred by a shadow of many mountain peaks. Mr. Spitzer, searching through old newspapers, old documents, letters, testimonials, some with almost faded print, perhaps before and perhaps after Cousin Hannah's natural, unnatural death, was reminded of many mysteries of her career which he was able to put together like the pieces of a lost mosaic, though there were always... An though there were always and doubtless always would be a few pieces missing as from his own consciousness. There were many lacunae, many portholes through which a spirit might escape. A man died not necessarily at the hour of his death. No one net could ever drag in all the stars, all the fishes, all the birds, moths, butterflies of the sublunar world. For, forever, would be, forever would a lost psyche wander down the wind. Also, she had inadvertently assisted him in his gradually emerging knowledge of her deathbed statements, which seemed to propose another life. He was reminded then, and upon many other occasions, of many anomalies, like his slow music, many hidden chapters in this life, this death, perhaps that hers had always been, in spite of the publicity, which could never quite be trusted, since arising from an unreliable source, since brought to some old newspaper reporter by astral voices, by a great maharaj or storm courier before the age of the telegraph, a hidden existence, which was the opposite of what had been supposed by the majority. For every being, Mr. Spitzer had observed, must contain as opposite as the heavens contain both moon and sun, whereas Mr. Spitzer contained his brother in the sunlight, so that she was perhaps not too different from himself in his oblivion. He had not known the hidden part. Only the outcroppings had been seen, looming like great mountain peaks, though always crowned by snow clouds piling up like other mountains or great snowbirds. He was not sure that even these were visible. Vision failed him always at that crucial moment of his understanding. Surfaces mystified him almost as much as depths. How many times he had trembled at the edge of that great abyss lying in the path of every mortal traveler. Perhaps she had already been engulfed. He remembered and perhaps had been reminded by her on her deathbed that though she was Hannah in Boston, this virgin warrior, who would seem to evoke no answering romance, not even one pale or dying or deathless spark, though here in Boston she had fought against man, she was Hamid in the east, and was also known throughout the cities buried under the desert sand. In fact, she was Al-Hamid. There her fame was that of mystery, only a great secret having permanence. Rumors like wind had whispered from tent city to tent city, perhaps were still whispering. Also, she had been known while traveling through mountains of snow as the Great Moor or Black Moor, though it was some time before Mr. Spitzer had understood the significance of this fact. Here her mystery is that she, could, she should be famous, for no man had ever really known her, a creature so mysterious that fame had only increased her mystery. It seemed to him that fame had blinded men to her and her essential beauty, that of deprivation, of absence of being. They had judged only by the externals, which were certainly never very prepossessing, never in her favor. She was surely not the dove. She was the hawk. She was rapacious. She was fierce as the winter wind. No tender sentiment had ever been hers when she was alive. She had seen men beheaded without a wink of her eyes. And yet, oddly enough, as he had discovered perhaps only after the unknown death of that great suffrage captain who had tried to destroy the last conventions of love and death, which were perhaps equated in her mind, the one coming only with the other, a 
and who had struck fear and trembling in all men's hearts and some men's hearts, and who had struck fear and trembling in all men's hearts and some women's hearts, and who had ridden against great sheiks and windy tents, there had always been, hidden somewhere in this world, a timid man who had loved her, Mr. Spitzer believed, though he could not say what man it was. But surely there had been some men attracted to one who had been so courageous in the face of every obstacle and mirrored obstacle, one who must surely now elicit an illegate love for that which never was, one who should not go down go to her unknown grave without the farewell kiss of a leaf falling in the wind or a snowflake falling, fluttering through a cloud. Rumors of lost loves, which had once seemed apocryphal, seemed real to him at that last hour as he approached the summing up and his farewell. Farewell to the great mountain peaks, the shadowed valleys. Farewell to this intrepid traveler who now must leave this life, which in a sense she had never known. For each who dies must leave that life he did not know, did not dream, did not live. Much must be forever unexperienced and merely hypothetical, a premise never to be pursued. And that was always death. Even in this life, for each who dies must die twice, it seemed to Mr. Spitzer, with his nearly comprehensible sympathies, his great understanding which almost caused his heart to fail, his heart to cease to beat. Perhaps indeed his heart was more silent than her heart beating now, tumult and the sorrow of her life once more returned, even as he watched. He had thought that perhaps she could never recon he had thought that perhaps she had never recognized the personal nature of her sorrow, but he had been wrong. For possibly even she had found that she could not escape, and if so, what were the years? They might never have been, and she might never have engaged in her great battle. He had stood in the dim house of that great battering ram of suffrage, feeling that he had come to the inner citadel where mystery remained forever unsolved. He had been reminded of many self-contradictions, many opposites, many, many hidden facets of Cousin Hannah's life, some he might never have known, some he might have forgotten, some which might be seen only in that light which comes before the everlasting darkness falls. Such light might be itself illusion like the crumbling years and time's passage from dawn to dusk. Time passed not the same from dusk to dawn, Mr. Spitzer knew, living now from night to day as he had once lived from day to night. Darkness fell around him even in the brightest sunlight, ruddy as a fire. Now he began to attribute value and importance to all those things once mockingly dismissed, though perhaps by his brother. Suddenly, though doubtless Mr. Spitzer was egregiously mistaken as usual, he began to see that Cousin Hannah's life, instead of being a flight away from the heart of life as he had imagined, instead of being solitary as the ace of spades, was solitary as the ace of hearts, was long one long act of love, perhaps a ghostly love, but no less real because of being that. Perhaps it was a celestial love or the nearest one might come to the devastating perfection. He might previously have denied this, though now he was ready to understand, to concede the presence of much he might have thought was missing. Perhaps a secret man, a shrouded lover, more beautiful than any man on earth, she might never have been, as he had supposed, the lone player playing the lone hand. There might always have been a secret partner in her grief, which she perhaps had never truly sensed until now. Someone who shared her destiny, someone who had lost this game of life with her or played for higher stakes than others knew. Naturally, his own musings on the subject were not quite rational. For was she not irrational like all great lovers of all lost loves? He almost hoped so, 
being almost ready to believe that only the irrational saved us from the last death one died. But how could he judge the dying or the dead? His consciousness would not endure, perhaps it already faded. He would be unconscious at that moment when he ought to be able to judge, and thus he would never know the difference between right and left, good and evil, love and hate. True, as he was reminded by a distant church bell striking above a subdued traffic buzzing like honeybees in distant meadows. She had long ago left the bridegroom waiting at the church door, carrying in his hands a bouquet of withered flowers, pale lilies streaking light until the sky darkened. At least according to those old rumors still going the rounds, Mr. Spitzer had overheard. But no one had ever seen the face of the bridegroom, and none knew who he was. And when the music had struck up, the organ music pealing from heaven to earth, here comes the bride. There had been no bride. There had been no distant thunder peals, Mr. Spitzer thought, and mountainous thunders rolling, and just at that moment, he heard a distant cloud burst. Usually, of course, how often Cousin Hannah herself had pointed out, it was the other way. It was the gentleman who left the bride at the church door. He who abandoned her. But Cousin Hannah, that great original, had always gone by opposites. She had always stolen a march. She had lived by being the master of the unexpected, the unpredictable, sudden turn of flight. For someone whispered that the abandoned bridegroom had died quite early because of his grief. He had simply laid down, stretched out his feet, and died, clutching in his hands those withered flowers as if the bride might come. He had never lived to see old age. There were others who whispered that he had lived to a grand old age and had never married. Love's arrow striking him but once. For timid souls adventure had a, but for timid souls adventure but once, and if they are disappointed, will never be disappointed again. Mr. Spitzer believed that they needed no further invitation to withdraw from life. They withdrew at the first blow, perhaps before the first blow was struck. Did he not remember his brother? Not twice would they be rebuffed, and some not even once. Perhaps there had never been a recognizably human love, Mr. Spitzer sorrowfully considering that possibility, and the unknown bridegroom had been relieved by Cousin Hannah's precipitous flight, though outwardly sorrow sorrowful, had secretly congratulated himself that he had escaped, particularly in view of the lady's subsequent career of thunder and lightning, her leading so many revolutionary forces, storming so many citadels to rescue so many veiled ladies, veiled ladies and carry them away from their husbands and lovers and friends. Perhaps he had been very gay and had openly consoled himself. Perhaps he had not recognized his happiness. Mr. Spitzer really did not know, of course, and never had found out. Various researches through various newspapers and legal documents and old letters he read after Cousin Hannah's death had not told him who the bridegroom was or when he had died, whether old or young. Mr. Spitzer was willing to let the past be veiled by its own mystery. He did understand, however, that after the wedding, which did not take place, Cousin Hannah had hyphenated her name and changed her signature, signing her name ever afterward, C.H. Fremont slash Snowden, doing so upon the advice of a Boston numerologist, who was a great authority upon the mysteries of the East and desert cities buried under the sand, though he had never been in the Orient, and had lived all his life in East Boston, and seen Boston only at night for more than twenty years. Virgin only at night, with other old camel drivers and goat herds and tent makers and card players and people who came out only at night under the flickering desert stars. There were more of these people than the census taker had ever counted. They emerged when others were wrapped in the great cocoon of sleep. The city of night was very different from that of day, Mr. Spitzer knew, having lived most of his life at night, though he had once been the creature of day. He had always preferred the creatures of night to the phantoms gleam at dawn. Surely, however, that great suffrage captain with her burning idealism, shining like a lost star, had not been a divided personality like himself, Mr. Spitzer believed. 
that she had suffered no great breakage or scattering of her powers, that there had been no feeling that she might have lived in some other way, died in some other way, that there had been no lingering aura of doubt as to a great battle for woman's freedom from love or the ghost of love, or whisper of a ghostly skirt soft as the whisper of a snowflake in the dark air. But he had been wrong, as he knew now in retrospect, for his judgments had been very superficial at the time. This, of course, was before he had had to change his mind about so many things, which he must have accepted as a matter of course, before the last stone had fallen to place under the dying stars. Mr. Spitzer knew now, as a matter of undubious certainty, that there had always been a few timid men camping on her clouded trail, but perhaps none could follow her to her high, frozen altitudes. Also, he had ascertained with a great sh that a great sheik had come to her aid, backing her because, as he had written to her, he considered himself the chief victim of the harem system that it was he who was trapped, he who wished to escape from being henpecked. He had written that he was the scrawniest rooster throughout all the Muslim world, so he had sent her bags of gold upon his camel trains, without doubt, too. Many husbands must have been grateful to Cousin Hannah for leading their wives to follow this will-o'-the-wisp, and thus many husbands were released from bondage. Mr. Spitzer always hopeful, and hopeful most when he was discouraged most, would not have been surprised, therefore, to find a great love emerging at the last moment, a secret man in Cousin Hannah's life perhaps the mysterious bridegroom or the caliph who said that he was in a cage, but he was surprised to find at the last moment a secret woman, a bride. Were not all the moments flying together now, all contradictions resolving themselves, and was not the body reunited to the soul by death? Was there not only one star, one body? Mr. Spitzer had asked himself as he tiptoed, guiding his body, which was too adipose for his mentality, which was the subtle of them all. He must remind himself, too, to expect many surprising things of one who had not lived in the ordinary way, and whose death would be no doubt extraordinary like every other death. She had always lived by contrarieties and by going against the grain of the accepted opinions. So he had been, as usual, very cautious, expecting many surprises when he came to Cousin Hannah's bedroom, which was her death chamber upon this alien star. Where, he wondered, was the great tent maker now? Where was her tent? He had heard the wind blowing through canvas shrouds. He had heard the tinkling of a distant bell, perhaps a camel bell. Perhaps he had heard a Muzin's lonely cry in the great desert of his life. He had reminded himself that whatever he found or saw, lie was... He had, he had reminded himself that whatever he found or saw, lie was to show no shock or surprise, no bewilderment. Death was the great innovator he knew, and capable of as many changes as life, perhaps more than life. He was determined not to lose his dignity. He was determined to express only the proper sentiments, to say only the correct words. He was to act as if all had been expected, even his own dream visit at this hour, which might be beyond the last hour for both of them. Yet he had been surprised to find the lady sleeping in a vast, high-ceilinged room, hung with voluminous satin folds and shrouds like a great desert tent or pagoda might almost have been creeping under some great skirt of crinoline, large enough to conceal the city, its spires and towers and temple bells. The roof was like a clouded city over him, perpetual starlight hung upon this place. In the blurred whiteness he could scarcely see his way. There was almost no color, but white upon white, in that great lonely shrouded room, white as sand and snow and cloud. He had heard the music of the wind, many whistlings and signs. He had come doubtless to the last encampment. 
and stopped for a moment, looking around him, peering with myopic eyes, already blinded by flying sand and glassy stars, trying to find his bearings, some familiar landmark in that place where he had never been before. He had been surprised to find her sleeping with her bare feet, long-toed and knotted, exposed to the pale light, her head covered by a white shroud, a white sheet wrapped around her like a winding shroud, for a while thinking that he had come too late, but her spirit had flown that he was in her tomb until remembering that, in the east, all things were the opposite from here. In the east, all sleepers slept with their faces covered like a hasurus, their feet bare. These conventions were not the same in all countries under the sun and moon and stars. He must behave as if he had crossed a far frontier.